Now, you may not think of it this way very often, but it's appropriate on a Reformation Sunday and All Saints Day where we remember the dead in Christ and we remember their life, their legacy, is that we're about to read about uh, people who are dead. You may not think of it in that way, but this whole Exodus series, you've been reading about people who are dead and who are very much alive in the presence of the Lord right now. And though they are dead, they speak, they teach us things, they show us things. And our Lord, by, by grace today, even in what may look like a very mundane text, Exodus chapter 25, the construction of the tabernacle, and especially the building of the furniture within the tabernacle, even within such a text such as this, I think you would be quite surprised about how this text uh, still speaks of the power of Christ who has died and is alive right now in the presence of the Lord interceding for you and me with the anticipation that the Lord by the Spirit will speak to us Let's approach God's Word in Exodus chapter 25 together as we consider the sanctuary of the living God. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined, twined linen, goat's hair, tanned round skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make the ark of Achaia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make uh, on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it to put them on its four feet, two rings on them on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of Achaia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark they shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends." The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to the other. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubim be. And, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, 
from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around it, the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold. Fasten the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. And you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches on the lampstand out of one of its sides, and three branches of the lampstands out on the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups, made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx on one piece and it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and the seven lamps shall be set so as to give light to the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold, and see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we believe that. No matter whether that word is our most favorite memory verse or the detailed instructions of the construction of the tabernacle, your word stands forever. And Lord, we would ask right now that you would stand in our hearts and that you would show it to be powerful for the teaching, for a proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that all of us need right here in this room. And most of all, to make before our very eyes the Lord Jesus Christ, even more believable and beautiful. Come and meet with us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. It was right near the end of World War II. On May the 10th, 1941, really the last serious raid that ever made its way into London, England, where the enemy dropped a bomb on the House of Commons, a treasured monument of sorts to the English people, a place that at the time where Winston Churchill was serving, a place that he loved and considered from a vocational standpoint, if I could say it this way, a kind of hallowed ground. After that destruction of the House of Commons 
Churchill actually went to the airwaves and gave a speech. And he gave a speech where he used a line that has been repeated over and over by architects and builders alike throughout the 20th and now the 21st century. Churchill said, we shape our buildings and thereafter our buildings shape us. Having dwelt and served for more than 40 years in the late chamber and having derived very great pleasure and advantage therefrom, I naturally would like to see it restored in all its essentials, in its old form, in its convenience, in its dignity. That phrase, we shape our buildings and thereafter our buildings shape us, was maybe even more true than than Churchill even knew, Um, especially as sociologists and those who reflect on the formative nature of buildings upon the patterns and habits of our lives have recognized that buildings have the capacity to fit us, to incline us, direct us, to shape us in a variety of ways. For instance, we recognize that certain architectural designs are more appropriate in the inner city than in uh, the country. If you were to take the elevator up to a brand new condo in downtown Nashville, there's lots of them, and you were to walk through the floor plan, you would see remarkable utilitarian efficiency. Um, you, you You would see a kind of common and communal living space. Uh, you, you would see aspects of its architecture that fit the urban setting. It would be weird to see a horse farm there. It would be weird to have a wraparound porch. It would be unusual, to say the least, to have agrarian animals walking down the sidewalk. We recognize that certain architecture and organization of space fits certain ends and purposes and accomplishes those purposes. We probably even experience that in walking in certain people's homes, maybe even our own. You've probably walked in the home that felt more like a gallery than it did a home with ornate molding, exquisite art on the walls, everything pristine and clean. Concerned that if you even sat on the couch, you would ruin the whole atmosphere of the room. You've probably also had the opportunity to walk into a very comfortable home where the space is organized, free-flowing, and easy between rooms, where chairs and coffee tables and end tables are aligned for conversation and the building of relationship, where quiet nooks have been carved out so that you can have a tall cup of tea and read a book. You've probably also walked in that proverbial man cave with that 80-inch TV screen and stereo surround with reclining chairs and more cup holders than we'd like to admit. And we realize that there are certain things that these spaces are designed to accomplish. And there are certain things that these spaces will probably never accomplish. Now, maybe as I was running through some scenarios of homes and rooms, you were doing a little evaluation of your own home. Like, what does my home say? 
What does that room say? What is the message communicated by the design and the structure of the room about what activity and practices and habits, we might even say what priorities are we prizing in the midst of the design of our rooms? Well, I think that's a worthy endeavor. I commend it to you this afternoon. But maybe a more important question, especially according to Acts or Exodus chapter 25, is what does God's house say to us? How did he organize it? How was its space structured? What kind of furniture did he consider most essential to its purposes? And when we begin to ask that question of Exodus chapter 25, we begin to see what one scholar said I think is correct, that we're looking at the most important building ever built in terms of its communication to share with us the story of redemption. When God builds a house, He wants to tell His story. He wants to tell the story that we're living, the very story of the gospel itself, which is why, as you can see in the midst of this chapter, he goes on and on with details about his home. Can you imagine being the contractor on the tabernacle with God being the master architect who's giving you fine details for every stone that you need and every tanned hide that you need to have? He has a very specific idea of what he wants to communicate because the message that his home tells to us is the most important message in the world. One of the most remarkable things about this home is that he actually starts with the furniture. We don't actually get to the structure of the curtains and the outside and inner room of the tabernacle till next week, so just get ready for future attractions. But in this section, he actually starts with the furniture, that which is what's on the inside of the tabernacle, as if to say to us, I am not so much building a tabernacle to put furniture in as much as I'm building furniture to house a tabernacle, to be able to the activity of worship from within through the furniture is actually revealing to you what it is that I desire to communicate. And for each of us, what we see that the Lord wants to say to us is directly related to where we sit and live and have our being this morning. Three things I want you to see that are communicated through God's building the tabernacle. I want you to see that it's a house of mercy. I want you to see that it's a house of communion. And I want you to see that it's a house of life and of light. I want to start with this house of mercy, and I want to begin with the most important piece of furniture. I think that's why it's prioritized in Exodus 25, this Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, if you look at it and you look at the details here in Exodus chapter 25, is really a pretty small and modest in size box. When you convert the measurements of the cubits here, which is essentially about 18 inches you realize that the ark is about 45 inches long. It's about 27 inches wide and about 27 inches deep. It has four small feet that it rests on as a box. And when it needs to be carried, it's done so with acacia wood rods that are overlaid with gold that are stuck through gold uh, rings that are attached to each corner of the Ark of the Covenant. 
Inside the Ark of the Covenant, we're told in verse 16, is the testimony. Now, there are several things related to that word testimony. We'll revisit it in a minute. But the first thing and maybe what becomes priority in terms of what the Ark of the Covenant houses is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are kept within this box. On top of the Ark, he spends a long time telling us about a lid. A lid of pure gold, he refers there in verse 17. And unlike the rest of the box that's actually made of wood and gold-plated, the lid is actually pure gold. And it's, it's handcrafted. It, it asked, it's to have two cherubim on the top of that lid carved into the gold. Both cherubim, these, these high angelic heavenly beings, carved on each side of the lid, facing one another with their wings open and their posture as one of praise. Interestingly, when you begin to look at verse 17, where it refers to the lid, it uses the word kaporet, a word that literally means cover. That's what it is, practically speaking. It is a cover for the Ark of the Covenant. It goes on top. But there's also a a bit of a play on words here. As God is known to do as he communicates the depth of what he's trying to show to us. Because the word kaporet is actually from the root word from which we get the word atonement. Which is a word that we often use for covering. We We might actually put it this way. The lid is a cover that's designed for your covering. Now, what do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, the, let's go back to that testimony for a second. Uh, that Ten Commandments that's rooted there in the Ark of the Covenant, stored there for the people of Israel, was something that was to be, li- was to be lived out by the people of Israel at the very center of their community. The tabernacle situated in the midst of the camp, holding in the very center of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the law of God, was a testimony or a testament from where we get Old and New Testament in our scriptures to the people of God for how they are to live. But different from the testimonies we just heard, which were personal stories from men and women in this congregation, the kind of testimony that's here is legal in nature. It's the kind that if you were called to the witness stand, where you would put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's the kind of testament, a legal testament, is actually being given. And this is where the struggle comes in, and part of why we see the house of mercy is what God wants to communicate to us as we examine the tabernacle, is that that testimony, year after year, weighed heavy on the conscience of every single Israelite. As they knew they were called to follow the law in all of its ins and outs. And yet day by day and even hour by hour they fell short of that which they were called to keep. And thus the testimony of the Ten Commandments testified legally to their guilt. That this was a testimony not in their defense but a testimony condemning actually bringing what would be inevitable judgment. Which is why, in verse 17, this lid is called a mercy seat. A very important language. Those of you who know a little bit of your Old Testament and you've read deeply from the book of Leviticus, you have Leviticus 16 popping right now into your mind. 
the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur as it's called. It was on that day where the priest would actually go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And as that testimony, so to speak, actually condemned the people of Israel and even the priest himself, he went in with the blood of bulls and rams. And what did he do? Well, he took his fingers and he sprinkled it in front of the mercy seat. The place where the presence of God, the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory dwelt. And on this day of the year, a substitution was given for the sin of the people. An offering was made so that they would be atoned. The covering of the ark spread abroad was the blood that would be a covering for the people. It would shield them from the judgment that they were rightfully deserving because of their failure to keep the law of God. One of the most amazing pieces of furniture that we see in all of the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, speaks to us of how the law of condemnation and the law of mercy come together. It speaks to us about a guilt that we have for not obeying the law in the way in which the Lord has given and a substitute provision of blood which the Lord has provided so that the law will not condemn and that we will be covered. You're seeing a foreshadowing of the house of mercy. The fact that God doesn't relate to us according to our sin and the deeds which we have done wrong. He has made a way for the covering of, yes, even your sin and mine. We are a people who can be welcomed into the Holy of Holies by virtue of the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. The one, Lord Jesus Christ, who has obeyed the law on our half and then gave himself up for us, freely giving his blood, sprinkling, as the writer of Hebrews says, our own conscience is clean. We are a people who have been given mercy. When God welcomes you into his house, he doesn't welcome you into condemnation. He welcomes you into mercy. And he wants you to see the great picture and portrait of what he's provided through the blood of even his son prefigured right here in the Ark of the Covenant. Well, that's the first thing we see when we enter into the house of God is that this is a house of mercy. And isn't that what we experience this morning when we come into the presence of the Lord? Here you are in the dwelling place of the living God. His word has come forth already in conviction. Do you remember that section called confession of sin? Do you remember that moment of silence where a variety of sins rose up in your own mind and heart? Do you remember the experience of conviction and the acknowledgement of the fact that this week you've fallen short. And then did you hear the assurance of pardon? Did you hear the mercy of God extended to you in Christ Jesus? Yes, indeed, when you come into the house of the Lord, prefigured by the Ark of the Covenant, you come into a place where there is mercy for the sinner who confesses their sin and trusts in Christ. But not only do we see that this is a house of mercy, we see it's a house of communion. It's a house of communion. You see it there in verses 23 to 30 in the text. And it really surrounds this, this table, this table that's being built, a smaller, a smaller piece of furniture than the ark that was previously spoken about. Uh, in this case, if we convert the cubits, we see that it's about 36 inches by 18 inches by 27 inches, a small table. 
And like the ark, this table was made of acacia wood and was overlaid with gold. It was brilliant and beautiful. The focus of actually the instruction of the table, however, is these three different items that are placed on the table. Did you, did you notice them? There are plates and dishes of pure gold that we're told that for the offering up of incense, the sweet aroma that would be in the presence of the Lord, a picture and a symbol throughout the Old Testament of the prayers of the people. And then notice there are flagons. Those are literally pitchers and bowls of pure gold for drink offerings. These were often thanksgiving offerings and other such offerings that the priests themselves would drink as an offering to the Lord, which would be given on the behalf of the people. And then thirdly, we're told right there at the end, it's just a blip really on the radar of Exodus uh, 25, we're told that the bread of presence is there. But I would argue that of all the things that are there on the table, the bread of presence is probably the most significant. It certainly gets the most press throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, the Lord doesn't, of course, go into much detail, but again, helpfully, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 24, we read more about what is this bread of presence. What some of you may remember from your, maybe even your King James days, the showbread or the shoebread, as it was sometimes referred to as. The, the bread of presence was these 12 loaves which were baked every week, um, set upon the table representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, they were sprinkled with frankincense and set aside for the purpose of the priests themselves to enjoy for sustenance. At the end of the week, if the bread was not finished, it was thrown out and 12 new loaves were baked so that a fresh presence of bread was before the Lord. And according to Leviticus chapter 24, this was done perpetually throughout Israel's history. Now, aside from the basic sustenance for priests, which we alluded to, what is the, what's the meaning of this bread of presence? Well, maybe one way to get it, it is to ask the question this way. What does mercy open up for the people of God? We've already talked about the mercy seat. We've talked about the house of mercy. We are those who do not receive the verdict of condemnation, but we instead receive the verdict of justified and not guilty. What does that open up for the people of God? Well, I'll tell you what it opens up for them. It opens up communion and fellowship for them. A sweet communion and a sweet fellowship with the Lord. For those of you who were with us last week, you'll remember we were in Exodus 24 and we saw one of the most amazing sections in the Scripture where there on Mount Sinai, Moses and the elders actually meet with God and we're told that they beheld Him and they ate and drank with God. Now you can imagine, this is the same Moses, this is the same elders who are, who are present there at that meal. How quickly that would have become a part of the emblazoned reality of their imagination. As God now says, I want you to have bread before me and drink offerings before me on the table in the midst of the tabernacle. In other words, I don't want you being before me eating and drinking to be a one-time event. I want there to be consistent and ongoing communion between me and you. 
I want everyone to have a seat at the table. That's why I've got 12 loaves. For every one of the 12 tribes of Israel, everybody will be represented at this table. The priest going before the people, eating and drinking in the presence of God. The the beauty of what the tabernacle is actually teaching us is that God desires, as one commentator put it, to give his nearness to the people. To give his nearness to the people. Do you see, he's making a journey himself. He's made a journey already all the way down to Mount Sinai. That's quite a journey in and of itself. Now he's going to make a journey from Mount Sinai into the tabernacle. And in order to do that, he wants to tell the people of Israel what they can expect as they understand the structure and design of his house. They are a people who can be welcomed into communion because he has shown mercy and provided a substitute. They are a people who can enjoy ongoing fellowship because he represents them in his presence with food and with drink. And it's no surprise, is it? After we've walked through the assurance of pardon this morning and received the mercy of God, now gaining instruction from his word, where does our worship service take us? It takes us to drink and to bread. It takes us this morning into the fellowship of what we might call a drink offering and a bread of the presence all the way throughout Reformed and Presbyterian history, we've wrestled over what's the nature of God's presence right here in the Lord's table. Varieties of views have been extended throughout church history about how to understand God's presence in the Lord's table. One of the rich instructions that we've gotten through the Reformed and Presbyterian stream is the fact that God by His Spirit is spiritually present with us at the Lord's table. We have genuine and true communion. It's not merely us thinking the thoughts of remembrance. It's not changing the substance of the bread and the wine. It's a spiritual communion with the Lord. Today, in His presence, there is a bread and there is a wine where you, the people of God, are welcomed into fellowship with Him. You see, when you come into God's house, he has a verdict for you. Not guilty, mercy. And when you come into God's house, he doesn't leave you hungry or lonely. He draws you in and he takes care of your provision. And he meets you and he marries himself to you. Even as he has told us, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, these are two elements in which we see in the tabernacle. A house of mercy and a house of communion. But thirdly, I want you to see that it's a house of light And it's a house of life. We come really to this golden lampstand, don't we? One of the longest sections actually in Exodus 25, as we were working through it with the calyxes and the buds and the almond blossoms, you're trying to, as best as you can, to try to figure out what it is that's actually being, being said here. What should it look like? Well, many of you have seen a menorah. You, you, you know uh, the, the seven-branched menorah in the, the short stem that is often used in Judaism today as kind of a regular part of their worship and of their tradition. Well, I think very similarly, the golden lampstand uh, would have looked very much like a menorah. It would have been tall, however, and had a long and a large base so that it could actually give light to the whole of the tabernacle. 
You can see that the whole of the thing is carved and hand-carved with intricacies and botanical themes everywhere, right? The buds and the almond blossoms and, and the branches which are referred to coming off the trunk or the stem. All of the imagery is sort of casting us back to this picture of fruitfulness, of life, and of light. Well, and that was desperately needed there in the tabernacle. As we'll learn next week, the tabernacle had four layers of curtains around it on the outside. There was literally no darkness able to get in to the tabernacle. In order to be able to see, the golden lampstand would have to be lit. Now, many have looked over this well, this, this detailed description and have wondered themselves, what all does it mean? Is it just for a practical purpose, for there's light to be given? Well, we could have been much simpler if that were the case. I would argue the ornateness and the elaborateness of the plans is speaking to imagery that we should pick up on. Some have said it had something to do with Aaron's rod. You remember Aaron's rod later in the book of Numbers will actually blossom at some point, and it will blossom with almond blossoms, we're told. And interestingly, that very rod will end up in the Ark of the Covenant. None of that's name. Maybe there's something there. Uh, some have argued that it has more to do with a, a cosmological significance. For instance, the, the seven lamps are almost almost assuredly a picture of, of complete light or fullness of light and life. Uh, some said it corresponds to the seven lights in the heavens, the sun and the moon and the five visible planets. Now, meaning that the tabernacle in, in its outer chamber is like the, the, the world and the heavens around and the holy place is like heaven itself. Well, more on that. We'll talk about that some other time. But it's quite clear, isn't it? when you begin to look at all of the themes in the construction, that we are meant to draw the conclusion that the golden lampstand is a tree. It's full of blossoms. It has a trunk and branches. It's flowering at all times. Its leaf does not wither like the tree that's planted by the streams of water in Psalm 1. Its roots grow deep. It gives fruitfulness, life, and light to everyone who's around. And without it, we would be in utter darkness. It's clear that these imageries that's given to us in the text are meant to evoke within us the sense that life and light is the ministry of the golden lampstand. That's hard not to think, isn't it, that when you realize the beauty of what's there, that we're probably hearkening all the way back to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. That tree that was set apart, whose fruit was always blossoming and whose leaf did not wither, was the tree that by many scholars' estimation was never actually partaken of. That would have been partaken of had the people of Adam and Eve actually past the trial of not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would have had access to the tree of life, eternal life forever. If that is the case, then, well, here in the tabernacle, we have a symbol of hope, don't we? That the tree of life is in one sense gone, but in another sense very, very present. A, a tree that is going to give light and life Yes, even to the world. It's hard not to think, isn't it, of Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness, well, they've seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then Isaiah even later saying, I will make you, speaking of the suffering servant, a light for the nations, that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. Do you see, when we look at the golden lampstand and we see it's, it's, it's hearkening back to the tree of life and it's, it's, it's indication that eternal life is actually available and is promised even through the covenant which has been given now to Abraham and Moses, we quickly begin to realize that we're talking about, well, the one who will come and tabernacle with us. You remember in the opening of Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus came, and when he came, he came to dwell, we're told, among us. You know, the, the actual word there in the Greek is to tabernacle. He came, we might say, to camp out with us, to pitch his tent with us, to be made like us in every way, yet without sin. And John tells us in that very text that Jesus is the light of, of which all darkness will be expelled. He is the light and the life of men. And in Him we find our dwelling place. Ephesians 2.22 Gloriously in these imageries of the tabernacle, we're getting a picture of the whole story of redemption. That when you walk into the tabernacle and consider it in its three-dimensional version, as you stare at the furniture and you understand its semblance and its symbolism, you're beginning to understand mercy, the welcome into communion, and the light and the life that ultimately we will be fulfilled in Christ. Do you see, we don't have, as it were, a building where its architectural plans has been given to us in the 21st century to build for the presence of God to dwell. Because we have Jesus Christ, who is the tabernacle, the very presence of God indwelt in human person. And through Christ, who is our light and our life, the one in whom we've gained mercy from, the one in whom we have communion with by virtue of the Spirit, He is the one that is building the greatest building ever built. You know, really, there is another building. I told you at the beginning there was just one building that God built. He's actually, he's actually building another building. It's just really different from the original building. No, it's not the temple. I know you're thinking of the temple. You're thinking that the temple that David wanted to build, that Solomon wanted to build. No, it ultimately is not that one either. It's what's well, the one I'm staring at right now. You know what you are? You are the temple of the living God. You are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Paul refers to you as living stones who are founded upon the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus who is what? Our cornerstone. The one who is the fulfillment of everything that the tabernacle points to. Everything that the temple only dreamed that it might be important for. Ultimately Christ is the one who fulfills and reality is today. This temple is spreading throughout all of the world. One of the astonishing pieces when we turn to the book of Revelation and we anticipate Christ's return is we're told that this, this, this new heavens and the new earth will be in the side of this perfect cube. <laughs> we might say it'll be in the, the, the sign of a perfect temple where, where all of God's dwelling place is with us and all of our dwelling place is with God. Where there we see, you know in the book of Revelation, the tree of life. And there we see the golden lampstand. 
Yes, and there we see the blood on the mercy seat and what it pointed to, even the lamb who is the lion of Judah. And there we have forevermore our communion with the Lord, that he will be our God and we will be his people forevermore. Do you want to draw close to the Lord? Because I have good news. He wants to draw close to you. He's been pursuing you through all the pages of Scripture. And He has been removing every obstacle in order to make you His. And He has set His love upon His people. And He is pursuing them in salvation and in sanctification. Growth and grace until the day that they are fully ready to meet with Him. Do you want to draw close to Him? Well, draw close to the church. Because He's around you right now in the hearts and the lives of the people who are all around you. And the living stones that are sitting to your left and to your right. He's here in the midst of worship when His Word is open, when communion is made available, when the prayers of the people are ushered. The Lord is here. Gather regularly in fellowship with God's people. Serve faithfully the needs of the church. And shine like a golden lampstand in the world that's around so that the nations might know that Christ is light and life. And if we walk in these ways, the wonderful thing that the Scripture teaches us is that He will dwell with us. That He will be pleased to dwell with His people. I long for the day when the fullness of this edifice, great as it is, is complete. When there's, there's, no, there's actually no, uh, there's room for everybody to enter. And there's nothing that needs to be repaired. And that the perfection of all of the stones wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, shining in their beauty, that Jesus himself is one for them. It's that building program that we want our hearts set towards at all times. It's that building project that really gives shape to our lives. We are shaped by our buildings. But by God's grace, let's be shaped most by the building that God is building. Even the people of God. You, His temple, His tabernacle. Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, we would ask indeed that we would be shaped by what you're building. By the glory and the power and the ingenuity and creativity and the wisdom that comes in the work of your spirit through the power of the gospel shaping us and forming us into your likeness. Would you chisel some stones this morning in the midst of worship? Would you have us to fit more closely aligned around the apostles, the prophets, and yes, even Christ himself? Would in all of these things you glorify yourself? And would you cause us to shine? To shine to the watching world? To extend mercy and to welcome in that through the taste and see of the gospel, we find that more people, Come to know you. Start that work afresh or even anew in the life right now in our hearts. For your sake and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.